Thank you for including John's gospel account that we can learn more details about what you have done for us. And we just pray you'll give us ears to hear. In your name, amen. So one morning, Emma woke up with a start, and her husband Jim said, what's the matter? And she said, well, I just had a dream that you gave me this incredible um, diamond necklace for Valentine's Day. (laughs) And he says, well, you'll know tonight. So that evening, Jim came home with a small package and gave it to his wife, and she's delighted. She opens it only to find a book entitled The Meaning of Dreams. (laughs) Smack that man, right? Yeah. At any rate, that's my Valentine best effort, ladies. That's all I got. Well, it's been my privilege to have been in Israel the last uh, few weeks and to actually be in the very places that we're studying about today. So the images that come to mind as we look at this chapter on the crucifixion are so moving and so vivid and what he suffered on behalf of sinners like us. I'm thankful John MacArthur, Warren Wiersbe, and others for their help in my study preparation for today. And as you saw last week, Pilate tried to rid himself of this political case by sending Jesus to Herod Antipas, who ruled in Galilee. But that plan failed as Jesus was sent right back to Pilate. Pilate found that Jesus was innocent of any crime deserving death, but the power of the Jewish leaders that would provoke a possible riot threatened him politically. His next move was to offer the release of Jesus, as was the custom that the Romans did during the week of Passover. They set a prisoner free, but people with the clout, spurred on by religious leaders, instead shouted for the release of the Jewish uh, Jewish zealot Barabbas, a known murderer and robber. Pilate had no commitment to justice, nor did he have any courage to do the right thing and set an innocent man free. So now Pilate comes up with another idea that he hopes will placate the crowd of the religious leaders and all of their cronies. And we see in verses 1 through 7 the cruelty then of the Roman scourging. And there's soldiers doing this to Jesus. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps on the face. As Pilate was running out of his options of what to do with Jesus, he decided to have him brutally tortured with scourging. This was an incredibly cruel form of punishment that many prisoners did not survive. They would have stripped Jesus, tied him to a post in his hands, and then began whipping his back with a whip uh, of three leather um, strings and that had jagged bone or sharp metal attached to the end so that with each strike of the body, uh, the back would be torn and so lacerated that muscles and veins and bones would be exposed. Roman citizens were protected from ever having this done. And the soldiers weren't even satisfied to just inflict this kind of brutality. Having heard that his crime was that he was the king of the Jews, they decided to take it a step further and to mock and humiliate him beyond the scourging. So they made the mock crown to imitate a crown that Caesar would have worn. And the crown was made of sharp spikes, as you saw and read, that they pressed down deep into his head to add more pain. Thorns came into this world as a result of sin when entered the world. And here we are at the point of redemption, and thorns were being used as he's paying for a debt for sinners. 
And then the soldiers took a purple robe and put it on him, mocking him as if he were royalty. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that they also took a reed and put it in his right hand as if he were a scepter, a scepter being used by a king. <clears throat> One can imagine how the material of the purple robe would have stuck to all the open wounds in his back and the pain that would have caused. And now that Jesus was dressed by the soldiers in their mocking game, they say, Hail, King of the Jews, and began to slap his face and spit on him. And they took that reed out of his hand and beat him on his head with it. And they knelt before him and hit him again and again with fists to his face. How often we fail to truly recognize the depth of the humiliation that Jesus endured in this whole process of going to the cross for sinners like us. I'm reminded of Philippians 2, 5. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, you and me, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He is our example of humility. He is our example of laying down our rights. And all of this was just the start of this incredible humiliation and suffering that Jesus would experience in order to purchase the pardon for our sins. Here we see Jesus with incredible meekness, which is strength under control. He endured this mocking pain. He could have spoke a word and they would be disintegrated, but he let them carry out their evil plans. Pilate hopes that this punishment will be sufficient. He brings him out again and says, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Famous words now. Hard to imagine how horrific the appearance of Jesus must have been, really, at this point. Unrecognizable. <clears throat> Bleeding everywhere, face swollen from the soldier's fist. A pathetic picture of a man who could barely stand at this point. Certainly he was no threat of danger to the Jews or to Rome. Pilate assumed that seeing this humiliated prisoner would satisfy the religious leader's lust for his blood, or at least arouse pity with some who would see him. So he declares he finds no guilt in this man. But the reaction of the chief priests and officers, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate's exasperated with these men, he really resents that they're forcing him to be part of their evil scheme. And so he lets them make the decision instead of being the Roman leader who is charged with upholding justice. The Jewish leaders demand that Pilate order Jesus to be executed. <clears throat> the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. They were claiming that Jesus broke Leviticus 24, 16. Though they had not been able to prove blasphemy legitimately, they demand he be put to death. <clears throat> At this time, the wife of Pilate sent him a message to have nothing to do with this innocent man because she was greatly troubled and suffered in a dream because of him. So we read, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, the statement that they made, he made, he made himself out to be the son of God. He was even more afraid and he entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, 
you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. That would have been the high priest and all of those following his lead. And as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So clearly it is the religious leaders that are calling the shots here. They've taken the authority really out of Pilate's hands. And having been unable to condemn Jesus as an insurrectionist, they want Jesus sentenced as a blasphemer of the law which really in Leviticus called for stoning, not Roman crucifixion. Pilate was caught in their political web that could end his position with his superiors if he allowed a riot to break out over this. Pilate was a weak politician who hoped he could compromise and satisfy everybody. He knew what was the right thing to do, yet he chose not to do it. Having never met a man like Jesus before, Pilate asks where he is from. It would seem he is asking... Uh, Jesus, if he's like a God from another world, come down. But Jesus had already answered that. We saw that last week in chapter 18, verse 36, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, Jesus remained silent at this time. Pilate had failed to respond to the truth Jesus had already told him earlier. When people are told the truth and they continue to reject the truth, he will ultimately reject them. <clears throat> Pilate's annoyed by the silence of Jesus. He felt like Jesus owed him an answer. Pilate then boasts about all the authority he had to set him free or crucify him as if it's up to him to make this call. But Jesus makes it clear to Pilate that he did not have control over the situation. There is nothing that can happen, even the death of Jesus, that is outside of the sovereign plan and control of God. Jesus knew it was not Pilate, nor the religious leaders who were calling the shots in this mockery of supposed justice. Jesus knew that it was the will of the Father, and puny man was not in control of what was going on here that day. We're reminded in 1 Peter 2.23, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Pilate, in his pride, thought, he was in control, but he was sadly mistaken. He certainly was responsible for his own actions uh, and decisions that he made, but the greater sin here was done by those who delivered Jesus over to Pilate, uh, the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the whole group of religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders had seen the evidence. They knew about the miracles. They knew Lazarus was risen from the dead, and they had brought about this trial and had pressured Pilate to do their bidding. The Jewish religious leaders realized they had failed to convince Pilate in their desire to carry out this plan, but they had one more trump card that they used on him to threaten that they'll report him to the emperor. And that way it would show that he's opposed to Caesar. If he would support somebody who says he's a king, then he's no friend of Caesar. So Pilate was trapped he feared for his political future and even for his life, and he was forced to give in to their demands to crucify him. So Pilate gives his final judgment, verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, 
It was about the sixth hour, 6 a.m. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So it's almost Passover, Sabbath, which will begin at sundown that day. And these religious leaders are only concerned about their traditions. They, want, they think nothing about the murder in their own hearts. Pilate thought that he was rendering this judgment upon Jesus, but all judgment is given to Jesus, who will one day pass eternal judgment on to Pilate and to all of these men. Pilate mock, uh, mocked the Jews when he said, Behold your king. And this only angered them even more, so that they cried out, Crucify him, away with him. For to them to say, though, that they had no king but Caesar, what a joke, what a lie. They hated Rome. They hated Caesar. But having falsely accused their legitimate king, they themselves are the one blaspheming God by saying this pagan ruler is their king. <coughs> Pilate asked the question that every individual ever born must answer for themselves. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Individuals either reject that or give mental assent but don't really think much about it or they acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Pilate had that opportunity, but in his pride and in his love of power, it caused him to reject the truth about Jesus. And he's been paying for that decision in hell all of these millennia. That brings us to the crucifixion of Jesus, the horrific events of this moment in history, the worst moment in human history, the most awful thing that could ever happen in all of human history, and yet it is the best thing that could have ever happened for sinners like us. John's gospel account is to convince his readers he is the promised Messiah. So therefore, the focus surrounding the events of the cross in this gospel account really emphasizes the fulfillment of scripture surrounding the death of Jesus. And it also reveals to us that Jesus was in complete control of every detail of his own crucifixion. So it begins with him carrying the cross. We see Jesus willingly and without any resistance going to his death. Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Jesus was bearing his own cross, which was most likely just the cross beam, put on his shoulders as he was led through the streets for all to see his beaten and broken body. Hebrews 13, 11 speaks of Jesus being sacrificed outside the camp just as the Old Testament speaks about the sin offering being taken outside the camp or city. Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary, was called that. There's a lot of opinions as to why. It's very possible it's because it was a place on a cliff on a hill that, or on, the, on a rugged mountainous cave type thing that looked like a skull. I visit, uh, visited two possible sites in Jerusalem just last week. Both were out, would have been outside of the city walls. And one is a big churches are built over it and it uh, is a possibility. The other one is called Gordon's Calvary, named for a man who found this tomb in a garden uh, from the time of Christ. And it was very close by to a hill, a, a rocky outrock that looks like a skull. So the form of being put to death uh, by crucifixion likely was invented by the Persians and the Phoenicians, but it was the Romans who developed it into being this incredible, torturous 
long-lasting way to die. It was reserved for their most shameful criminals. Jesus spoke of his death in his ministry when he said the Son of Man will be lifted up, just like Moses was lifted up in the wilderness. So Jesus could not be stoned to death. He was lifted up to fulfill scripture the exact way he would die. Psalm 22, as you know, is a perfect description of crucifixion written countless centuries before. And it gives a graphic picture of the kind of death that Jesus went through. David, who was penned that psalm, spoke of the abuse Jesus experienced, the torment, the agony of the body, his bones being out of joint, the stress on the heart, the incredible thirst, the nails in the hands and feet. Specifically, then, he talks about the actions of the soldiers um, that were predicted after they crucified Jesus and took his outer garment, casting lots for the seamless woven one-piece outer tunic that he had. These heartless soldiers had no idea that what they were doing in casting lots was the fulfillment of Scripture. They were validating the reality of who Jesus is and how he fulfilled every detail. It is God who was directing all of these events, accomplishing his will perfectly. We read that Jesus was not crucified by himself, but there were two other men with him on either side. Isaiah 53, 12 predicted the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And John makes it clear to his readers that Jesus is not the victim here. He is the Messiah. He is fulfilling every prophecy about him. Even as the three were suffering this awful death, Jesus reached out to the criminal next to him as they spoke, and he offered forgiveness and salvation. And then there's the sign that was made, the inscription put on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. <clears throat> it was always done on a busy road. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. When Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. So the common practice was that a criminal, <clears throat> when he was crucified, had their offense on a placard, you know, on the cross. There really was no valid criminal offense here with Jesus. So Pilate decided to stick it to the religious Jewish leaders for how they had blackmailed him into approving this death. And to make sure everybody who passed by on this very busy road, especially this time of year, all the pilgrims coming for Passover, busy, busy, busy road. So he made sure he had it in all three of the most common languages. Pilate tried to humiliate these leaders that they would have such a pathetic king. And so he had the inscription made. Out of spite, though, God overruled so that, in fact, it was exactly true. He is the king of the Jews. <laughs> he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. What Jesus did on the cross, he did for the world of sinners that he was saving and would save. The impact of this inscription brought light to one of the thieves hanging next to Jesus. And the crowds of people passing by this scene would have been so many. And as you know, victims were always stripped naked, hanging there to add to the humiliation. But even in the midst of all this pain, we see Jesus' incredible concern for others. A group of women, along with John, we're near the cross, specifically mentioned as Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then his mother's sister, Salome, the mother of James and John, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary was a popular name. <laughs> Can we branch out, people? I don't know. Um, Miriam, what is what it would have been? 
But the crowds of mocking people and the rulers shouting all of their insults to Jesus, wagging their heads with all of their evil things they were saying to him, is contrasted now with this compassionate small group of those who loved him. And they were close enough to him for him to speak to them. And later they would be driven away or retreat to be by some of his other followers further away. But his biological mother, she was now experiencing the fulfillment of what she had been told by Simeon when she brought him to, as an infant to the temple, uh, that a sword would pierce her soul. And that's what was happening as she was watching. Her presence is, isn't even mentioned in Matthew or Mark because Mary does not have a key role. Mary herself needed salvation. She needed the forgiveness of sins that Jesus was dying for her as well. Mary Magdala is from the village of Magdala, and recently we got to be there where it's a newly excavated area where they found a synagogue that was Jewish believers at the time of Jesus. So this is where Mary was from, right along the Sea of Galilee there, the woman who had seven demons cast out of her. And the only man among this group so close to the cross was the author of the book we're studying, John. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And I, the last time I taught was on chapter 14, where Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. And though his heart was incredibly troubled, knowing what he was facing, he still cared about his men to bring him all the truths that you've been studying uh, from 14 to 17. Even though he faced incredibly difficult challenges ahead and knew what he was going to do. And here he is now in the midst of the horror of the cross and his heart is full of love and concern for his mother. Joseph was evidently already dead and having siblings that at this point did not believe in Jesus as the son of God. He makes sure his mother was cared for it by John. So unspeakable agony, pain, rejection by the father, being made sin on our behalf, and he's concerned for a widowed mother. Now we see more of Jesus in control. We read, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And he knew there was one remaining prophecy to be fulfilled from Psalm 69:21, And he knew that by saying he was thirsty, the soldiers would then be prompted to give him a drink. They didn't do this to be kind. They were only doing it to prolong his agony. He had refused the gall earlier because that would have deadened the pain and he was determined to drink the full wrath for sin. But having at this time received the sour wine, Jesus declared his work is complete. To Tetelestai, it's finished. The debt is paid, is what the word means. He had completed the work of redemption. Sin is atoned for. Satan is defeated, who had enslaved people in the fear of death. Satan is now powerless. God's holiness is satisfied. Every prophecy has been fulfilled about the Messiah and his death. 
Having finished his mission, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life. Nobody took his life from him. And he laid it down on his own accord. Jesus' power is seen so clearly here in his dying. And we'll see it again in his burial and resurrection. That brings us then to the burial of Jesus. Because of the Jewish leader's great concern that these bodies not be hanging on a cross as everybody's coming into Jerusalem, and it's the Passover and it's Sabbath, it's a high holy day, they go and ask Pilate to have the legs broken of those who are hanging on the cross because that would speed up their death. They took mallets and just smashed their bones and their legs, which you can't imagine the added agony at that point, but the result would be suffocation because the only way they could breathe on the cross is by pushing down on their legs so then they could get a, a gasping breath. But once the bones were all smashed, there was no way and they would suffocate. Pilate agreed to the request, but when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. But to make certain, the soldier pierced him in the side. And again, all of this is to fulfill scripture. Psalm 34:20. he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. He died earlier than they thought and when he decided to die. And to also fulfill another scripture, which we know is going to happen in the end times, at the end of the tribulation, Zechariah 12.10 says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So he had to be pierced. So every detail of his death was fulfillment of scripture and proof that he is the promised Messiah. The blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side has been thought to be caused by the Lord's heart bursting from the agony and the sorrow of bearing sin. John, the author of this gospel account, testifies to all these things happening, he says, so that you will believe. So the once timid and fearful secret followers of Jesus now get courage. I mean, to get an audience with Pilate and to ask for the body of Jesus so it could be a proper burial. I mean, these people who were executed in this way were just dumped in a mass grave. But in doing so, again, Isaiah 53, 9 is fulfilled. That Messiah's grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jews. But at this point, he was willing to put himself in danger and to ask for the body of Jesus so he could be given a proper burial. And he was assisted by Nicodemus, who came secretly by night to visit Jesus. And they prepared his body. They brought the, the uh, linen burial clothes and a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 100 pounds of weight to wrap the body in very quickly because it was almost going to be sundown. John explains to us that in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden nearby. And in the garden, there was a tomb that no one had yet been laying in. And a, uh, the common tomb was carved out of a rock and it would be sealed by rolling a large stone in front of the entrance. So this was all done in a big rush to not be there for the Sabbath. And how these tombs were made had like shelves that you'd lay the body on. And then at, after one year, they would open it up and put all the bones together over on the side so it would be prepared for the next person who would be dying. And that would be the family tombs and that's, the bones would all be collected. And that's how they did it. Again, this was to fulfill prophecy uh, about Jesus said about being 
just like uh, Jonah in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. But the Jewish people counted any part of a day as constituting a day. So he needed to be buried while it was still Friday, before sundown, that would be one day. Saturday would be day two, and Sunday morning would be day three. Every detail of his burial was under his complete control. Truly, he is God. Every aspect of his ministry, of his miracles, of his trial, of his death, of his resurrection, were all under his sovereign control. And since he came and endured such sorrow and grief and pain on behalf of selfish people like you and me, how can we not give him our all? With this kind of love and sacrifice, our response must be a heart of surrender and willingness to turn from our sins, turn from wanting our own way. So I encourage you to examine your own heart in response to our study today. Have you surrendered your heart to him as your Lord and King? What's the answer to your question? What will you do with Jesus? The real question is, does your behavior evidence the fact that obedience to, your, to his word is your top priority? We have seen the greatest demonstration of love in our study today. So you can trust him to take care of every detail of your life. He is the same sovereign God ruling over every minute detail of your life and mine. He is worthy of our trust and confidence. What was the worst thing to ever happen in all of human history was the best thing that ever happened for all who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the encouragement it is to us to see how sovereign and powerful you are and this unbelievable demonstration of love to your enemies, people like us who could care less about anybody but ourselves, that way then, back then, you were dying on behalf of all who would come to call on you as Lord and Savior. I pray that we would live lives that reflect that we know you, that reflect a heart of gratitude for this unbelievably, wonderfully given love to wretched people like us, Lord. Thank you for all that you suffered. Thank you for the rejection by the Father you went through. You were abandoned, so we'd never be abandoned. You love us so completely, Lord. I pray that we would love you and be devoted to you out of hearts of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.